we are kicking off a new series in Jonah this morning, but before we get to that, I want to share a uh, traumatic event in my life. I was about between 10 and 12 years old. It was a summer evening, probably around 8, 30 or 9 o'clock because it was dark at the time. And a bunch of kids in my neighborhood, we were playing this game called Kick the, F- Kick the Can, which basically, I, I mean, at least how we played it was you have like a can or something in the middle of a cul-de-sac, and you have someone with a flashlight, and they're trying to like, I guess, tag you with the flashlight, and you're trying to somehow, some way, get and actually kick the can without being seen or heard. And so at one point, I was just a neighborhood, side note, I grew up in Cary, so just, you know, if you know anything about Cary, nothing bad ever happens in Cary, so keep that in the back of your mind. I run behind this house. The house is on a little bit of a hill, and so I run behind this house and run under uh, the, uh, the uh, deck, which is about 10-ish feet in the air. And as I run behind the house and under the deck, I hear a grill. And I'm thinking, who grills at 9 o'clock at night? Like, what are you doing? And as, as I'm processing this, immediately I hear a man yell, hey, who's down there? What are you doing? At this point, I'm thinking, I'm going to die. Now, here's why I thought this. Uh, we, this. This man was kind of a big, burly, really strong guy, so kind of picture me. And, uh, and so, and so he, we always, I don't know why, he was ex-military. For some reason, we all had it in our minds that he worked for the FBI. But again, nothing ever happens in Cary. I don't think an FBI agent lives in Cary. But anyway, he was something, he was very intimidating. And so I do what any 11, 12-year-old would do. I ran thinking, this isn't good. Let me get out of here. So I don't say anything, and I run, and I'm like, okay, that was scary. Well, as I'm running out of the deck behind, beside the house, I then hear these massive footsteps coming after de- uh, down the deck after me. And so I'm running. He's chasing me. He's yelling, get down, get down, stop running. Meanwhile, he's holding a steak knife. What is happening? I had a good life, 11 years, good family, good friends. This is it for me. And so I run across the street to the other side of the, the, the grass with the other neighbors. And as soon as I get there, I give up. I'm like, this is not going to go well for me. I might as well wave the right flag, whatever. So I immediately, you know, lie on the ground, on the grass and not the, ro- uh, not the road. He comes up behind me, puts his hand on my back with the knife over my, over my back. And he's basically like, what are you doing? Who are you? Now, as I think of this moment now, um, all, at this point, all the neighborhood kids were like, what is happening? They're all watching. I think of it now, and I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. It's, you know, maybe who's like running behind your deck in the middle of the night. I don't know. But also you could hear us running around and we're kids. And why are you chasing me with a steak knife? I have no idea. Well, after like 10 seconds of him yelling at me, he eventually said, well, you guys need to be careful what you're doing. Now, why do I share that story? One, because it's still traumatic in my life. But two, I gave up really quick, right? I surrendered. I was like, this isn't going to go well if I keep running. Again, I'm a little 10-year-old boy. You would have thought he would have let me go, but he was still chasing me. Now, why do I share that story? Because this morning, we're beginning a series in the book of Jonah. Now, as a side note, uh, the tagline for this series, I don't know if you can read it, is a fishy tale about a faithful God. I don't know about you, but I think that's an awesome name, okay? Some people were like, I think that's awesome. So just just want to say that there. Okay, anyway. Now, what is that story? As we begin this story in the book of Jonah, we're looking at this question today, but really over the next four weeks as we look at this book, and that's this. What does it look like to surrender to God? Right? What does that actually look like if you're a follower of Christ? You're like, well, yeah, that's something I want to do. And, and what does that look like for me if you're not sure about who this God thing is, but you have questions and you're interested in learning more about it? You might be like, what does this mean to like follow Jesus and surrender? What does that actually look like? And not only that, but how can I do it? Like, How do I know if I'm actually doing that or not? That's what we're going to be looking at 
this morning as we begin the book of Jonah. And so if you have a Bible, you can pull it out. If not, if you've got a smartphone or there's a black Bible under your seats, we'll be in page 1021 of that in Jonah chapter 1. Let me really quickly give you like three quick things to help us get context of what is happening here. If you're not familiar with the book, or maybe you are somewhat familiar with it and you're not quite sure what's going on, uh, the events in this book happened in the early to mid-8th century B.C., so this is a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away, and uh, this is, okay, that was, that, that was funny. Okay, thank you. Uh, and uh, so this is, this is in the 700s BC. Um, the author and the date of this book is unknown. Clearly, it is the story of Jonah. Yes, it was shared. We're not exactly sure how, often, how close or maybe far after the series of the events in this book it was actually written or who wrote it. Now, the big debate is, is this true or false? If you're somewhat familiar with Jonah, that's the, you know, like, did this the things that we read actually happen in this book, or is it just kind of like something we are supposed to take principles off of? I would say this. Faithful Christians can disagree about the historicity of this book um, because that doesn't change the message of Jonah. However, for what it's worth, until about 150-ish years ago, there was no debate about whether or not the author saw this as history. Now, this doesn't prove that it actually happened, but until very recently in modern scholarship, it was assumed that they thought this actually happened. Uh, and the last thing I would say, if you are familiar with this book, the, the, the encouragement I would have is try to read this book as if you'd never read it before. What often happens is we can bring kind of our preconceived ideas of what's actually happening in Scripture, and we can miss out what is actually happening in Scripture. As a side note, the Christmas story, which I love to debunk every December, how, what we actually think happened is not actually what Scripture tells us a lot of times. And so what I want us to do is try to forget if you've ever read this story before and see what actually is going on so that we might actually be able to le- learn some things from it. Now that said... Jonah chapter 1, again, what does it look like to surrender to God, and how is this going to play out in Jonah's life and our life? Here's where we go. Here's what it says in verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, real quick, let me just give some background. Jonah is actually mentioned one other time in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, uh, we see Jonah prophesy or interact with King Jeroboam, who was the king of northern Israel in the early to mid-8th century B.C., which is how we know when this story took place, where he essentially, Jeroboam was an evil king. He was unfaithful. He did not honor God. And yet, Jonah prophesied that God was still going to expand Israel's uh, territory, even though they were under an unfaithful king. And that's exactly what happened in this point of Israel's history. Also, as a side note, Jonah is a contemporary of the prophet Amos and Hosea, if you are familiar with them as well. So this is Jonah. And here's what happens next. Here's what God is calling him to do, verse 2. Here's what God says. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them from Tarshish from the Lord's presence. So God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach against the Ninevites, and he doesn't want to do it. Now, we're not told why. In fact, we don't actually really find out why until the very end of the book. And so at this point in the story, Jonah is told by God to go preach to the Ninevites. He doesn't want to do it. We're not told why. And in fact, he tries to get into a boat and go as far away as he can. In fact, here's an image just to give you some geographical reference of what's going on here. Uh, You can see Joppa in the Middle East there on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. That's about where he was. And then he goes to Joppa to flee to Tarshish, which at that time was roughly the most western known part of the world. And instead of going to Nineveh, which was 550 miles to the east, he goes exactly or as far as possible 
to the West to flee from what God is asking him to do. Now, as we read this, we might be like, Jonah, like, why? What is, what's happening here? Why don't you just obey God? Here's what I want us to see as we begin our time in the book of Jonah. Here's what I want us to know. That God sometimes asks us to do hard things. Again, we might not fully know yet why this is so difficult to Jonah, but I'll let you know once you do find out why, you and I would have done the exact same thing. But at this point, we're not told why, but clearly this is a very difficult thing. This is not something that Jonah's like, I don't like that idea. There is very real reasons why he and why you and I would have likely responded in the same exact way. And so what we need to understand is that when God asks us to do things, it does not mean things are always going to work out the way that we want them. It's not, it does not mean he's going to always ask us to do the very same thing that we wanted to do. So isn't that awesome how God just kind of always agrees with us? It is true that being faithful to God sometimes uh, leads us to do things that are hard for us. Let me just give you a, a couple of very clear examples in Scripture where God clearly asks us to do things that are hard. So, for example, uh, the biblical sexual ethic is hard, that God created sex to be a good thing for human flourishing. Uh, but in the context of a relationship between a man and a woman is hard, that we should flee from lust and, dis- and, and pornography and all these sorts of things that are easy and maybe naturally we might want to p- take part in. He asks us to do a hard thing and flee from it. Or if you want to continue, marriage is hard, right? Biblically speaking, uh, marriage is a covenant, lifelong relationship between a man and a woman. And so in our culture today, when irreconcilable differences are by far the number one reason for divorce, we need to understand that is not a biblical reason for divorce. Now, as I say that, there are biblical reasons, grounds for divorce. And if you have been divorced for any reason, this is not to make you feel guilty. This is not to condemn you in any way. God is gracious and kind. But he asks us to do hard things, which means uh, for marriage to work, it takes a man and a woman to do what is countercultural. And that is not to be off of all of your desires and what you want, but to actually care for and serve and put the desires of your spouse before yourself. These are hard things. Uh, Financial generosity. Right? Giving of our finances, which for many of us is like the only one of the very few things we can control in our life, that we are to help uh, serve what people that we see in need to fund the mission of God. This is a hard thing that God asks us to do. Right? Just because it's hard doesn't mean he doesn't want to do it. I'll give you one last example. Forgiveness and grace. We love forgiveness and grace. Right? We love the idea of forgiveness and grace until someone has made you mad and they don't deserve to be forgiven. Right? Then all of a sudden, we have justification and exceptions to say, well, why? here's why this doesn't apply in this situation. God sometimes asks us to do hard things. Right? He asks us to do hard things. And so because of that, here's what we, the question that we might need to consider as we look about surrendering to God and what this looks like in our life. Here's the question. Uh, where are you running from God? If God sometimes asks us to do quite difficult things, and we have areas in our life that we might not want to give over to God, where are the areas in your life as we talk about surrendering that you might not have surrendered, that you might be keeping from yourself? This is not to say that you don't love Jesus. This is not to say that you are not forgiven and a follower of Christ. But there are are areas in all of our lives, if we're not careful, that we don't want to surrender to him, that we're running from him. Maybe you could think of it this way. Who is suffering from your disobedience? Who is suffering because you have an area of your life that you don't want to give to him? 
right? It could be a friend. Maybe you have a friend who is uh, taking part in some destructive behaviors, and the loving and kind thing for you to do would be to lovingly confront them and talk to them about what you're seeing going on in their life that is not good. But because that's hard and it's a difficult thing to do, you're like, eh, I don't know if I want to do that. And so you have a friend that's suffering. Maybe you have a, a coworker or a classmate who, uh, who is suffering, maybe who is not doing their job the way they're supposed to do, and it'd be easy for us to be like, well, I'm just going to focus on me. I don't really care what they do. I don't really care about my, my employers or my company, but yet God tells us to work for the flourishing of our societies. Or, or maybe there's a group of people who are suffering, who are facing injustices, and maybe you or I did not play a part in, this, in, in setting up the structures for those injustices to happen, but that does not mean we can't be part of the solution, right? Just because we are not the ones that, that made something happen does not mean we cannot be the ones to help bring the solution to it. Or maybe it's you, right? Maybe you're the one that is suffering from your disobedience, that you have a, a struggle, a sin weakness, an area of your life that is hard that you're trying to keep hidden because you think you can handle it on your own, and you're the one that is suffering. The question is, where are you running from God? Because it's going to be difficult to confront and to be faithful in certain areas in our lives, but as we're going to see, it is for our very good that we do them, right? Jonah is running from God, and so here's what happens next in verse 4. He's in the boat, they're setting out on their way to Tarshish, and here's what happens. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. So a storm comes. That's, obviously, these are professional sailors, so they're freaked out about it. It is not good. They start to throw things overboard to try to keep the, the ship from sinking. Uh, they're, these sailors are from various parts of the world, and so they're all crying out to their own maybe local gods or their own deities, uh, trying to see if their god will rescue them from the storm. And then we have Jonah, who is asleep. Now, some scholars say maybe he was just exhausted from his travels, or because Jonah, what little we know of him, he likely was not a sailor in any stretch of the imagination. He could very well be sick and passed out and throwing up because of everything that is going on and capable of helping. So he's not participating in trying to make this ship stay afloat. And so here's what happens next, verse 6. The captain approached him and said, what are you doing sound asleep? Get up call to your God, and maybe this God will consider us, and we won't perish. But this is, Jonah then is, is confronted by the captain, and what the captain is doing is actually echoing the command from God to Jonah in verse 2, which is to get up and go. Right? He's saying, get up and go and call to your God, the very God that Jonah is ironically trying to run away from. It's the complete opposite of what Jonah actually wants to do. So verse 7, he says this, the, the, the captain says, come on. The sailors said to each other, let's cast lots. Then we will know who is to blame for this trouble that we're in. So they cast lots, and they singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business, and where are you from? What is your country, and what people are you from? 
right? They're trying to find the problem here. They cast lots, which is a very common way in, ancient, in the ancient world to try, to try to get the gods to reveal their plan for you or what you're actually supposed to do. And as fate would have it, you could say it falls to Jonah. Now, what the author of Jonah is trying to do here, he's trying to show us the sovereignty or how God is in control over all things. And so what happens here is Jonah is singled out uh, as the problem. The sailors then discover what you and I already know as readers that Jonah is at fault. And so they understandably are now like, Jonah, what did you do to make this happen? What's going on here? Here's what he says, verse 9. He answered them. Here's what Jonah says. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, What have you done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. Right, so what's happening here is he identifies himself as a Hebrew, which is basically telling them the part of the world that he is from, that he is an Israelite. And he claims, here's the irony, right? He claims that his God is the one who actually created everything, right? He's essentially saying that my God is the one true God, and yet at the same time, Jonah is running from the God who's over everything and can see everything, right? And so at this point, the sailors now know Jonah is at fault for the crisis, and they're afraid. Because just knowing that Jonah's the reason, it doesn't really fix the problem, right? They're still in the problem, even if they know whose fault it was. Now, as a side note, here's what I think is really interesting about what's going on here. Um, If we're going to put modern, if you were to put modern language on the decisions that Jonah has made up until this point, or a modern perspective on it, here's what we often say, or maybe we often hear in our culture today, that, that you can do whatever you want to do, as long as it doesn't harm anybody else, right? You live your truth right? Whatever is true for you is good for you. You are able to do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anyone else, whatever that's supposed to mean. Now, if we're watching this story unfold, God asked Jonah to do something. Jonah doesn't want to do it. And so we would say, well, that's fine. He can, that's, that's between him and God. He's not impacting anybody else. He can go do his own thing. But what do we see that's happening here, right? That his sin may be private, but it has public effects. Or put another way, that sin can be hidden, but it's never secluded. Sin can be hidden. It can be covered up. It can be done in secret, but it never stays that way. It never stays that way. It is a lie that we believe that we can make decisions that do not impact other people, right? Because here's what we know, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, that we are called by God to love others, to love God and love others, right? That is the greatest commandment that Jesus gives us. Love God and then love others as a reflection of the way that God has loved and served and cared for you, right? Sin, however, violates both of these commands. Sin is always a decision to choose our own selfish or private ways, so it it always hurts our relationship with God. And because we are a relational people, everything we do in some way or in some fashion impacts other people at some point, right? Sin can be hidden, but never secluded. Let me just use me as a personal example, right? If I'm caught up in deep sin, Clearly, that would affect my family, right? Because they are completely affected by what I'm doing. Let's say I have an affair. Not only does that affect my family, but that also affects the church, right? I would have to step down from what I'm doing. Why? Because we can sin in private or we can sin without other people seeing it, but it never stays there. Everything we do impacts other people. Jonah, again, with modern language, has made a private decision, is living his truth, if you will, thinking it's okay because I'm not impacting anybody else. And what happens? It ends up impacting 
other people. Now, as a side note, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to knock Jonah here because I think we would do many of the same similar things. But again, sin is hidden, but it's never secluded. Everything that we do impacts our relationship to God and to some degree our relationship with other people. And that is where Jonah finds himself with the sailors. So verse 11, here's what happens next. So they say to him, so the sailors ask Jonah, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Right? Jonah is the problem, and the sailors need a solution. And so for the sailors to survive, what does he say? Throw me over, right? You pretty much have to sacrifice me so that this will calm down. And I guess it also helps Jonah's benefit for the fact that he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, Nineveh anyway. So I guess this apparently solves everybody's problem. So that seems pretty straightforward, but yet here's how the sailors respond in verse 13. After he tells them you have to throw me over the bo- overboard, they say this, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry, to dry land because they couldn't, or but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they call out to the Lord, "Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this innocent man or because of this man's life, and don't charge us with innocent blood, for you, Lord, have done just as you please." What's happening here? is that when the sailors finally, or sorry, so the sailors don't want to be responsible for Jonah's death, right? They're like, well, we don't want to kill a man. Uh, We didn't set out to do this. We're not sure what to do. And so instead of just throwing him over, they try to row back, which clearly doesn't work. Now, when they say they don't want to be charged with innocent blood, they're not saying that Jonah was innocent. What they're saying here is that they don't want God to view them as someone who's a people who are murdering somebody or killing somebody because they didn't want they didn't want to do it and so they don't want to be kind of charged with murder before God, if you will. And so all these things happen, but they don't work. And so what ends up happening here is that they're going to cry out to the Lord. Right? They're afraid, they're scared. These sailors who have no, no idea about this God that Jonah talks about begin to cry out to him. Now what's interesting here is that in difficult times, this can often be a response. If you think about 2020, for example, this has been a hard year for everybody, right? All of us have been impacted from various things. It's one of the unique times in our lives where everybody's always suffering for different reasons. Most of us are at different points for different reasons. But this year, we're all collectively suffering together in some ways because of COVID-19. Now, uh, many of us may have said uh, or may have heard people talk about how we wish like 2020 was canceled or how we, sh- we wish we could just go back and like start over or how we wish we could just like fast forward a year or 18 months or however long it takes for this thing to kind of get under control. Why? Because it's uncomfortable and we don't want to be living in this, which is a total normal response that we're suffering. We don't be living in it. But what we see happening here and why I would say maybe it's a good thing that we're dealing with some difficult things and why it might be a good thing that although this is hard and uncomfortable, that we should not wish it away. And here's why. Because suffering often leads to an encounter with God. Suffering, as we're seeing with these sailors right here, are now encountering God in a way that they never would have, right? These sailors may never have heard actually of this God of Israel if not for the suffering that they experienced. Right? And many of you, if you are a follower of Christ, you would say there have been difficult times in your life. And in fact, your suffering may have been the reason that you saw your need for Jesus. Right? If you had never suffered, you may have never experienced the grace and mercy that he offers. 
Suffering often leads to an encounter with God if we are willing to pursue him and ask questions. And I think all of us, even if we have doubts, even if we have frustrations, even if we have anger based on hard things that have happened to us, it likely has at least, in some form or fashion, opened us to the idea that what is God doing? Asking us, asking questions about God or to God that he never would have experienced otherwise. What we're seeing here again is that suffering often leads to an encounter with God. I can just share my own personal experience. I know this is anecdotal, so it certainly doesn't prove anything. But if you're familiar with my story, uh, if you're part of New City Church, you know that when I was 19 years old, a lot of crazy things happened to me that year. But the biggest one by far uh, was losing my dad to a suicide, right? And it was depressing, and it was hard, and there was questions, and there was anxiety, and there was suffering. And yet, and yet, there, there is something about that season in my life where before or after, I have never felt the presence of God in ways that I had felt then. Never. Now, as a side note, here's what this shows us. And I just want to say this to maybe encourage you, that you can be depressed, and that you can be suffering from anxiety, and you can be stressed out, and you can be filled with doubt. And that does not mean that God does not love you, and it does not mean that you don't love God. You can be depressed. You can be, again, you can, you can be like, God, where are you? What are you doing? And that does not mean that you are not faithful, and it does not mean that you don't care about God, nor does that mean that God doesn't care about you. What we see all throughout Scripture is faithful men and women who trusted God and were like, where are you, and what are you doing? Right? Even the prophets of the Old Testament, when I was a kid, I used to think, you know, it would have been really cool to be an Old Testament prophet because you would actually, like, some form or fashion, literally hear from God, right? So you would know without a doubt that God exists because you would have some sort of divine revelation that was happening to you. What's interesting is that even in spite of that, many of these prophets at different times struggled mightily. Some of them even said that they wished that they were dead, right? Jonah, as we're going to see, is trying, is experiencing very difficult things because of God. And what we see here, again, is that you can be depressed and have anxiety, and it does not mean that you can't be faithful and God doesn't love you and you don't love him. It's a human condition. We are in a broken world, and life is hard, and you can love God and still struggle at the same time. So again, suffering often leads to an encounter with God. For my personal example, there was a something about my relationship with Jesus that, is never, that I've never quite experienced to the same degree as when I was suffering. And so this is what, and before we kind of wish away this year and wish all these bad things didn't happen, and it's not to say that we should be glad for, to suffer. It's not to say that we should say, oh, this is awesome. I love being depressed, right? I'm going to say that. But what if God is teaching us something and is doing something that we never would have experienced otherwise? I, I, I wonder five, ten years from now, the amount of people that said God saved me during COVID-19. That never would have happened. That never would have happened otherwise. In fact, this is a moment in our lifetime where we can actually uh, be the presence of God to other people. And here's what I mean. Uh, nobody, especially if they're suffering, will ever say no to being prayed for. Right? They won't. And, it's, and right now, the unique opportunities, we know that everybody's suffering. Friends, coworkers, classmates, we know everybody's suffering. And so one of the ways you can really live out your faith in a non-awkward way right now is to maybe have a conversation with a few friends, text a few friends, however you want to do it, and say, hey, I know this time is hard for a lot of people. I've been asking a few people how I could pray for them. Is there one or two ways that I could uh, be praying for you? And you can either pray for them right there, or maybe that's kind of awkward. You're not sure you want to do that. Write it down and send them an email or follow up with them a week or two later and ask them how things are doing and actually pray for them, right? This could be a way that their suffering and your suffering might lead to an encounter with God that never would have happened otherwise. Suffering often leads to an encounter with God. That's exactly what's happening here with these sailors. And so here's what they do next, verse 15. 
Then they, being the sailors, uh, picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by a great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Right? When the sailors finally do obey Jonah's instructions, things immediately die down, which I mean, this would be absolutely insane, especially for sailors who know that this is not how things operate. They throw him over, and everything stops. It's, it's not comparable at all, but if you've ever been to a water park with one of those wave pools, it's like 10 minutes on, 10 minutes off, or something like that, where it's like these massive pool, and they have all these waves, and then they like press a button, and it just go, goes away. It's kind of like, what just happened there? Right, whatever. Th- this was such a big contrast, and it happened so quickly that these sailors knew. They knew that Jonah's God was at work, and so what did they do? They're in awe of him, and they offer sacrifices. And in spite, and here's the irony, in spite of Jonah's disobedience, they are experiencing the one true God. Now, to be clear or to be fair, we don't know what happened to the sailors after this. We don't know if they continue to, to, to seek the, the God of Israel or if they kind of went their own way. But at least in this moment, they are having an encounter with God where if they had never suffered, it never would have happened, right? And in fact, the sailors are doing what Jonah is refusing to doing. And they're worshiping him, and they're offering sacrifices to him, and they're praising him. Again, this is their suffering that they would never have chosen, that they would never have wanted to walk through, that is actually leading them to an encounter with God. And then here's how chapter 1 ends, verse 17. It says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So Jonah, again, is swallowed by a great fish. Uh, as, uh, we have no idea what it was, how big it was, what it looked like, or any of those sorts of things. Um, but he's swallowed there. Now, I want to make a couple of points as, as we read this, because, again, we're kind of like, that doesn't sound real. Like, really, swallowed by a fish? Here's what we, we just want to say a couple of things to point this out. That people would say, well, clearly this is a fictitious tale. It didn't actually happen. Now, number one, uh, the author offers no embellishment of the events. And that takes place in the story. They simply uh, state them as is. You would assume if the author was knowingly trying to say, kind of maybe write a parable or a story of something that actually happened, you would take times like this to exaggerate the detail. Instead, they're just kind of like, this happened and this happened. And the second thing I would say is that prejudging miracles can't occur actually prejudges the issue. In other words, the author clearly believed miracles could occur. Uh, in fact, it's a postmodern idea to simply outright claim that miracles can't occur. That's the belief that God doesn't exist, or if he does exist, he's certainly not a care, he doesn't care about the affairs of human beings. I mean, have you seen how big the universe is? Clearly, he's got enough things going on. But that's not what we see throughout Scripture. There's a lot of things in Scripture. The resurrection of Jesus, being born of a virgin, right? There's a, there's a lot of things that are clearly miraculous, and if a God is actually intertwined with the happenings of the world, we shouldn't automatically say that since we read something that seems weird, that it can't be true. This doesn't prove that it's true, but I do think we're doing ourselves a disservice if we're automatically saying, well, these things can't happen. Now, I say all that to say this. The point that the author's trying to get us to see is that God, again, is over all of these events, but right? he's seeing all these things that are happening. And in fact, the whole story of the Bible is actually God's story of redemption, that God actually intimately cares about the affairs of men and women, right? What we see here is that God is not just concerned about Jonah and Nineveh, but all of Scripture shows us that he actually cares about all of mankind. And the point of Scripture is pointing all of us to Jesus, 
right? It's pointing all of us to Jesus, and it's showing us that Jonah is just another example, a shadow of how magnificent Christ actually is. Let me just give you a few, a list of things that we see just in Jonah chapter 1 that are meant to point us to the Messiah that is to come. Here's what we see, that a word of, the, word of God came to Jonah, but Jesus, what did he do? He actually came as the word of God in John chapter 1. What we see happening in Jonah is that Jonah ran from the Lord's presence, but Jesus came to be the Lord's presence for us. What we see happening here is that Jonah was a sinner who ran from God, but Jesus is the God who runs after sinners. What we see here is that Jonah came as a Hebrew sinner, and Jesus came as a Hebrew Savior. We see that Jonah slept in a storm because he was overwhelmed, and if you're familiar with the story, you know that Jesus slept in a storm because he was at peace. Jonah could not command a storm to calm down on his own, but Jesus, again, if you're familiar with the story, commanded a storm to calm down on his own. Right? What we see happening here is that the pagans sought to save Jonah's life, but it's actually the pagans, the non-believers, that sought to end Jesus' life. What we see happening in the book of Jonah is eventually uh, some were saved from one nation, but because of Jesus, many are saved from all nations. Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days. Jesus was in the grave for three days. Jonah was thrown into the storm of God's wrath one time. Jesus was thrown into the storm of God's wrath for all time. Finally, what we're seeing here is that Jonah needed a Savior. And Jesus is Jonah's and our Savior. Right? This is who Jesus is. What we see happening here is this, that Jesus did what Jonah could never do. Ultimately, what is happening here is that Jesus did what Jonah could never do and what you could never do. That you cannot perfectly follow and obey and love God the way we were called to. And yet in spite of that, God out of his grace, not as we talked about last week, not simply because he's a God of love and that's who he is, that God sent Jesus not simply because he loves you, but because he also likes you. That he desires a relationship with you, not because he needs us, but because he cares for us. That the gospel is that Jesus is Lord over all things, that he is perfect and that we are not. And that through his death, burial, and resurrection, you and I can experience the grace that God is offering us through Christ. That in Jesus' resurrection, he is paving the way to take power over the sin and darkness. And that one day when he returns, we will take part of his kingdom, not because of what we did, not because of what you did, not because of what Jonah did or did not do, but because of what Jesus did. Jesus did what Jonah never could do. Jesus did what you could never do. Jesus did what your spouse could never do, what your friends could never do, what your boss could never do. He offers you grace and forgiveness, not because of you, but because of him, right? And what we're going to see happening is at this moment in the beginning of Jonah chapter 2, Jonah is going to finally surrender to God, that his eyes are going to be open from what he was fleeing from, that he's, he wants to get his far as possible away from God, and yet he's going to realize that God is actually in the will of God, even though it can be hard and difficult, is exactly where we need to be. And so as I close this morning, here's what I want us to know, that surrender is an invitation to stop running, right? Jonah, as we're going to see, is finally going to stop running. Some You might today need to stop running. Today might be the day, if you do not know Jesus, if you do not know the grace and the mercy and the love that he offers, you need to know that he's offering that to you today, not after you like pray a bunch of prayers and do a bunch of good things and give a bunch of money to charity. He loves you right where you are. 
And through him and the power of the Spirit, that is how you change. Not through some self-will or self-effort or self-determination. That God, through his Spirit and his people, is inviting us to know him. So Jonah is stopped running. If you don't know God, today is the day that you need to stop running for your own good. Or maybe you're a follower of Christ, and if, if we're not careful, we all can have certain areas or aspects in our life that we're holding on to, that we're not surrendering to God because it can be difficult, right? It can be embarrassing to admit our sin to, to, to trusted friends who want to help us walk through it. It can be embarrassing to admit that we don't have everything figured out on our own and we need help. Maybe you do know Jesus today, but there's an area in your life that you need to surrender to him, that you need to stop running from him so that him and his power and his grace can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And so today, to that end, we're going to be celebrating baptism. Baptism, baptism is the tangible reminder of God's grace to us that shows us that people are saying, I want to make public what has already been happening privately, that Jesus is Lord of my life. And so following the command of Jesus, I want to show and demonstrate what God has done to you for me. Uh, and so I'm going to invite the band to come back up on the stage. Uh, and we're going to sing a song together. And then we're going to celebrate baptisms. Now we're going to sing that God gives life, that he brings grace, that he gives us goodness in spite of us, that he makes a way when there is no way. This is what the gospel is, that Jesus does for you and for me, what we could not do for ourselves, and when we surrender to him and to his will and to his goodness, that is when we experience what God has for us, that God asks us to do hard things at times, that God asks us to do difficult things at times, but they are for our good and for his glory. Surrender is an invitation to stop running. And so as we sing this song and as we celebrate baptisms, let me just encourage you today to be honest before God about the areas that you, are, that you are running, about the areas in your life that you are trying to keep secret, about the areas in your life that is causing suffering to you or maybe to those around you because we're afraid of doing the right thing because it's difficult. The good news of the gospel is that God does not shame us into following him. He does not guilt us into doing what we're supposed to do or not what we're supposed to do. He simply invites us to experience the grace and the mercy of him. And so if you will stand with me, uh, we're going to sing and then we're going to celebrate baptisms together.